Would you pray with me, please? Or at least, if you're not going to pray with me, don't pray against me. Let's pray. Father who watches over the sparrow and over budding flowers in the field, we're asking you to watch over us in the kinds of conditions we find ourselves in. We're asking you to convince us in the ways we need convincing that you can be trusted that your evaluations are worth embracing, that the words coming out from the mouth of the resurrected one are the kinds of words that can trick a person back into life. Would you do that for us now, we pray? Hatch hearts in us. Make us responsive, receptive, astonished, And gladdened, we pray in the name of Jesus, whom we now invite to come by his Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes, when you want to understand something familiar, you have to look at it in unfamiliar ways. When you really want to get a, an angle of vision on a thorny problem or you want to be able to see something that's very familiar to you, you need to look at it from upside down or from a vantage point you hadn't seen before. Come at it from an angle that's never been presented to you before. I think that's why poets... And literary folks and musicians are so esteemed in their way because they help us see things that have become blurry to our vision or simply unimpressive. Pierce Pettis, a songwriter that I admire that most of you don't, you would if you knew him, he's just obscure. He one time did this in something like what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount when he began to ponder lives, decimated lives, lives that aren't going like you think they ought to be going. He started to ponder the kinds of things we say in the moments that assail us to God. He started thinking, what would it be like if we sort of flipped it around And thought about things from a heavenward vision. And he came up with this. When you start to doubt if you exist, God believes in you. Confounded by the evidence, God believes in you. When your light burns so dim and your chances seem so slim and you swear you don't believe in him, God believes in you. When you rise up just to fall again, God believes in you. Deserted by your closest friends, God believes in you. When you're betrayed with a kiss, when you turn your cheek to another fist, it does not have to end like this, God believes in you. 
when you're so ashamed that you could die and you can't do right, no matter how hard you try, God believes in you. Blessed are the ones who grieve, the ones who mourn, the ones who bleed. In sorrow you sow, but in joy you'll reap. God believes in you. Now, I don't think Pierce Pettis is envisioning God as some celestial cheerleader saying, Come on, Toby, you can do it. I believe in you. He's flipping it around and saying, In the midst of all the kinds of situations where you are inclined to call yourself God forsaken, in all the instances where you're tempted in rebellion and dismay to shake your fist at God, He, like the Apostle Paul says, even when we are faithless, cannot help but be faithful. He can't help but stick with us. His love, His inexplicable bonds of loyalty and affection for His people are such that He just can't stop fussing over them. And sometimes, the biggest kick in the pants of your own unbelief or your own discouragement, your own dismay, is to begin to flip how you're thinking about stuff and embracing another perspective. Not being led along by your own nose, but thinking how is God thinking about things right now? And of course, that's very difficult to do. But something like that is what's happening when Jesus takes to this mountain where there's a large crowd apparently going up to get some visibility, and the crowds come to him, and his disciples come in closer, and he sits like a good rabbi would, and he begins to teach them. And I would urge to you today, there's two things really worth considering. There's a thousand things worth considering, but we're going to look at two, which should relieve you, because think if we did 998 more. I'd love to urge you to embrace Jesus' teaching. That might sound simple. We'll talk about it more. But to embrace Jesus' teaching and then to embrace Jesus' evaluation of what's right and good in our lives and in the world. But first of all, to embrace Jesus' teaching. You might not think in these terms. But what I'm about to say is something I'm hoping will be a a shot in the arm of your confidence and being able to even sit at Jesus' feet as he is depicted as teaching here in the Gospels and as the Scriptures aim, as the passage last week said, to say that everything about them is him. Everything in the scriptures in some way or another is ultimately pointing to him who is the exact representation, we're told, of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Well, it's helpful sometimes to reevaluate for a moment, to think for a second, why am I listening to him? Why would we be listening to a sermon on the mount, which is what we're going to be doing if you keep coming back for the next few weeks? 
we'll look at these chapters from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And it's interesting, I hope you'll find, that we're doing this the week after we celebrate resurrection. Because, see, something in the New Testament interpretation, and I'm hoping in each of your lives, changed when you realized that the resurrection is true. That there's some kind of special consideration that ought to be given to somebody if they make all kinds of claims about themselves and then they get smacked down deader than a doornail and a few days later they show up at your family get-together and asking for some fish. If that sort of thing happens, you know something's up. And what's interesting to me is thinking about the way the Bible treats that fact, that Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead by God and declared with power to be a son of God, that it was substantial and significant and worthy of paying attention to that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. In fact, in a very interesting essay that most of you have not read, and I have not read, but I have seen Walker Percy refer to it, Soren Kierkegaard wrote an essay entitled this, The Difference Between an Apostle and a Genius. Now, what is the difference? Maybe you've never thought about this before, but it's very helpful when it starts to get down into the nitty-gritty of your life, and you say, who am I going to listen to? How am I going to form my opinions about what is and what ought to be and what God thinks about me and what I ought to think about God? And he says this, a genius is somebody who has a profound kind of intellect. A genius is someone who figures things out, who makes connections that nobody's ever made before. Geniuses are people in our culture that you want to listen to. They're, they're futurists. They, they make a prediction. They look at the data and they start to imagine what's going to happen with social networking and computing. These are people, if you're looking to figure out how on earth do you get your baby to sleep through the night or how do you organize your home or How do you understand the chronic illness that you have? You want to listen to a genius. You want to listen to an expert. You want to listen to somebody who has a lot of letters beyond their name that stand for something like advanced degrees. Correct? And one of the interesting parts about the Bible, when you look at the New Testament, is that none of its people are necessarily geniuses. In fact, right after Jesus' resurrection, there is a problem. How do we replace Judas, that mother scratcher? He betrayed Jesus, and then he killed himself, and now we got only 11. Who's going to fill his spot? They have a problem. And so Peter says, guys, Email me your resumes. Let me see who has the most amount of profound theological insight and knowledge and understanding of the ways of God. 
who's demonstrated themselves to be worthy of a tenure track and who can represent us in this budding organization that we're planning. He doesn't say any of that. You know what they say? Oh, we need to find somebody who went to the funeral and then was there when we was eaten and Jesus came. Okay, I'm being a little silly. We need to see somebody who is a witness to the resurrection. That's the main thing. We need to see... We need to have somebody with us who can be a witness to the resurrection with us. There was no call for them to be extra special smart. They just needed to have reliable eyes. They just needed to have hung around with Jesus while he was on the earth and heard him say some of the kinds of things he was saying that they now are reinterpreting in a considerable way. And so confident were they that this was the only criteria necessary They said, and then once we get the two guys, we'll just flip for it. We'll just flip for it. They flipped the coin. Okay, they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, and so he got to be the one. He didn't have to be a genius. He just had to have been a witness to the resurrection. And, of course, Peter says the same kind of thing when he's writing his letters. I want you to know, I'm going to keep reminding you of this stuff because these are not cleverly invented stories. This is not, I'm not J.K. Rowling. I didn't come up with something as cool as Harry Potter. All I did was I happened to see something that no one's ever seen before. Somebody claiming to be God who got the tar knocked out of him. Who got... As poor as you can get. You can't, as Flannery O'Connor said, be any poorer than dead. And he was dead. And everybody knew it. And he got up. And less you think that you're infinitely more sophisticated in your senses than people 2,000 years ago, there is no one at any point in human history that has regularly expected for dead people to get up. Now, we do now with our zombie infatuation... But that's a different thing altogether. That's editorial we. I don't actually have a zombie infatuation. I'm talking about you people. <laughs> it's significant. And then when Jesus, raised as he was from the dead, appears to Paul, appears to all these witnesses, appears to his disciples at the end of Matthew, the book we're in, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have the rights to the planet earth, to all its inhabitants. And this is what he says. This is why I'm saying embrace his teaching. He says to them, even though some of them are standing there, and while they watch it, they're doubting. Is that a clue? That this was hard to swallow? About a dead man getting up? Some worshipped, some doubted, but he says, all authority has been given to me. Go and command them as you baptize. Command them to do everything that I have taught. The Bible is pretty serious about this. It's the kind of claim that isn't easily, or shouldn't anyways, be easily discarded by anyone sitting here today or any of your friends. 
But what a good footing we have. Because all the New Testament authors are aiming to tell us about someone that they saw alive, get killed, be raised up and say, oh my, I've been to funerals, but I've never seen one turn out this way. This must mean something. And Jesus says it does. It means I'm the king and you'd better listen up. It means this is God's special man who has special say-so about lives. So listen up. If you really want to listen to somebody who's gone through death and can tell you what's on the other side, then listen up. Embrace his teaching. C.S. Lewis in one place says, we could wish. We could wish that the Bible, because we have a lot of questions, don't we? We live in an anxious age, more anxious than his age, in the sense that there are so many choices. There's so many routes you can take, so many paths down which you can meander. You wonder about things. Am I, am I living it right? You might say like John Mayer did a long time ago. You might wonder, am I parenting in the right way? Am I studying the right major? Am I taking care of myself in the right way? What does God think about me? What am I supposed to do? And we could wish, we could wish when it comes to embracing Jesus' teaching that what he would give us is some kind of list, some kind of systematized checklist that we could wake up in the morning and be like, okay, Jesus wants me to use Colgate. None of that crest. Like, why does he want You don't ask questions, it's there. It's just there. Do the Colgate. And whatever you do, make sure you eat oatmeal for breakfast and some orange juice and have just one cup of coffee, not two, one. This is the route you should take to work, and this is the work you should go to, and this is how you should deal with your children, and this is how you should deal with your boss when they're being less than pleasant towards you, and this is how you should handle a difficult conversation with your roommate. This is what you should do. We would like it if God would tell us. How do we handle important public policy decisions? How do we handle complicated things at our work? And he says, I can't be the only interpreter who has wondered, for instance, why the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, who was given so many gifts, was was withheld the gift of lucidity and orderly expression. In other words, Paul is, well, he's quite bright. Most people agree with that. But he can't say nothing clear. That's how C.S. Lewis would have said it. He can't say nothing clear. He doesn't know how to put anything in order. Now, when C.S. Lewis says that, I think there's hope for me because I don't know how to say anything clear or put anything in order. Literally or figuratively. And Jesus is the same way, and he says, you know what's got to happen? If you're going to embrace Jesus' teaching, in a lot of ways, you've got to think of yourself. I'm expanding his verb that he used. I'm making up a metaphor. You've got to think of yourself as a hot, boiling cup of water. You got to think of yourself as a hot boiling cup of water and you got to let Jesus be a tea bag. You got to let the scriptures be a tea bag that get dropped into this cup of water 
and they just sit there. You just linger with it. You know what starts to happen? You, you guys are all cool, sophisticated tea drinkers. You know way more about it than I do. But it starts to seep, and it starts to flavor and change the water. All the molecules of the water get transformed as they come into contact with this alien force called a tea bag. It transforms hot water into tasty green tea. Whatever kind you like. And he says, this is the kind of thing the scriptures seem to want us to do, is to seep in a personality. To get our lives flavored by Jesus. He doesn't tell us how to handle all the thorny social issues of our time. He says, get up close to Jesus and begin to let his vision of life under the sun, begin to let his evaluation of how God thinks about things, begin to let it flavor you, to tenderize you, to invade you and alter you. And that's exactly what a disciple does. The people who got to hear the Sermon on the Mount were disciples and they came to Jesus. We need to hear what you say. And you know what Jesus says at the very end of the sermon? And people are astonished. He says, if you listen to my words, if you take and seep in my words, and you let my evaluation and my thoughts about things begin to infect your thoughts about things and your feelings about things and your actions about things, your life will be like a steel-reinforced house built on top of Lookout Mountain on rock, baby. And there ain't no amount of torrent and there ain't no hurricane-force winds that's ever going to even remove so much as a shingle from your roof. Your windows are secure. The foundation won't crack. Your life will be able to weather anything if you take my words and make them your life. But he says, if you ignore my words, if you don't throw your arms around my teaching, if you take the resurrected Son of God and you say, He What does he know? This is the real world I'm in. If you ignore him, Jesus says this. Your life will be like a house that is built in Florida. That's bad. On sand. It gets swallowed by a sinkhole. It gets pummeled by hurricanes. Your life's going to fold if you base it on other words than the words of the one who has conquered death. So I say all that. That's a long, long point. Tell me. But I say all that because this is serious business. It's not an easy and flippant thing to say, ah, Jesus, God raised him from the dead. We're talking about him 2,000 years later. What if he's right? What if he has something to say for you to embrace and he wants you to to seep regularly in his teaching, which really the whole Bible is? Embrace Jesus' teaching. 
The Bible's full not of geniuses, but apostles who saw things and were sent with messages for things so that we would get them. Because God has things he wants us to be. And the second point is this. Embrace Jesus' evaluation. And then we get specifically to what Jesus actually says to disciples, to people who have attached themselves to him and said, we want to learn how to live and how to think about life and how to feel about life from you. He then opens his mouth and he says these peculiar things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted in the meek because they're going to inherit the earth. And those who are as thirsty as they can be and starving for righteousness because they're going to get filled and for the merciful because they're going to get it. Mercy, that is. Clouds full of it and the peacemakers. They're going to be called sons of God. And people who will and want God's will and want are going to see him one day. And you're even blessed when you get persecuted, he says. Now, he says these things that you've heard so many times. And this is the resurrected Christ. Not yet resurrected, but saying this is the vantage point of heaven. And you know what's so important about this? He's giving you insights into the kinds of conditions that you find yourself in, maybe even today. You might not find yourself in every single one of these conditions, but in the kinds of conditions you find yourself in where you determine there ain't no way God likes me. You have ideas in your head, I promise you. You have ideas in your head about how God feels about you and how you feel about God. You make determinations. You have evaluations. And what invariably happens is your internal evaluation of yourself becomes what you think God is evaluating you by. Let me give you an example. Some of you, not a lot, I'm looking around. Some of you are a little bit older. You're... You're 45, you're 50, you're 55, you're, and I've probably got to stop there. At the other, at the other site, you, I can get a little bit higher. But you know what happens after you've been hanging out with Jesus for a little while? You can look back over your life, I imagine, and you start to say, I thought it was going to be better by now. Have you ever in a moment of utter candor looked at your life or maybe you've just, you've just done something at work, you've just reamed somebody out, you've just exploded at home, you've just, you've just considered how you've hurt somebody and it's quiet and you hate yourself and you think, why am I not any better? I can remember when I started out, I was so zealous for Jesus. And I I thought, surely by now I wouldn't be gossiping like this. Surely by now I would have so much more generosity of heart that I wouldn't be so critical of other people. Oh, I thought by now, surely my temper would, would have been fixed. And I don't know if I'm even an ounce better than I was. Now, you don't have to be old to have moments like that. Or older, 55 ain't old, you know, young people. 
But you know what? Those kind of moments hit us. And they're the kind of moments where we say, I don't even know if I'm for real or not. And to that, Jesus says, blessed are you. What? Blessed are you. Because you believe in total depravity, right? You're good Presbyterians. Dour and staunch and severe. How on earth do people who in their natural bent want to serve themselves, who want to get what's theirs, who are naturally curved in on themselves and selfish, how do people like that begin to get sad that they haven't progressed any better than they have? That's crazy talk! Unless you've been invaded by heaven itself. Unless the life of heaven has begun to be cram-packed into you and all of a sudden you find yourself wanting something that people who don't care about God don't want. Newsflash. You're mourning. You're hungering and thirsting. You're wishing you could be something better. Where did you get the wish? Where did you get the wish? You got it because you're being messed with. You got it because God himself is tampering with you And summoning different kinds of ways of being in you. And Jesus says, you're blessed. You're not cursed. Some of you are, look at your life sometimes and you start to make the evaluation because in America, everybody's been convinced they've got to have their own ministry. They've got to be doing something important. And you're just like, "I'm I'm just a mom. I just work at Unum. That's an insurance company, right? I wish I was doing something important. I'm not doing anything important. I don't, I'm not making any dent on this planet. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Poor in spirit. You think you're not bringing anything to the table? You, you recognize I'm not living up to what I had hoped, or even you're just misevaluating and thinking that God wants you to do glorious things. Things that get you splashed on a news story. And here he is telling people who are mourning, who are as hungry as they can be for things to be so much different than they are, for people who are being kicked around and abused. He's saying, you're the ones who are in a state of God-favoredness. The more you embrace that, the more you can lean into these kinds of things and start to say, oh, I'm thinking about this all wrong. You start to wonder sometimes, if I were really strongly adhered to Jesus and I was a loyal follower of of His, when I get to work and my boss asks me to do something, they they, they call something for me, and I just don't feel comfortable doing it. Why do I feel such inner conflict? The people at work are able to give themselves so much more fully to this work, and I feel this inner conflict because there's other things asked of me. And you can start to evaluate that and say, that seems all wrong. I should be, I should be gushing and glowing like a fluorescent light with peace inside. Shouldn't I? And Jesus says, blessed are you. 
You think people who are being persecuted for righteousness don't feel the self-doubt and the persecution of it inside? You think when you're trying to live in a right way with God and with other people and with his earth, you're not going to have times where you're deeply conflicted? (laughs) You are. And Jesus says, blessed are you. That's God's evaluation. See, we tend to think, if I was really blessed by God, and blessing is what people want. The blessing has to do with God. It's the kind of thing God does to Adam and Eve in the garden. He blesses them, and then he says, go out. Make babies and run the planet Earth in a magnificent way. He tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Your socks are going to fall off with the blessing out of this. Blessing is going to carry you around like a chariot and the whole world's going to be smiling and happy because of it. Blessedness is something that the Bible always talks about God doing to people. And Aaron has said to give his blessing, putting God's name on the Israelites the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you because you, if you don't live underneath the sunshine of God's smiling face, you live in a cavern of darkness It's not worth dwelling in. And it's easy to imagine, especially if you listen to people in our country, even Christian people, to think if I'm really blessed by God, my figure's going to be different, isn't it? If I was really blessed with God, wouldn't my hair be better than this and my teeth more sparkly? And wouldn't, I wouldn't have trouble paying my mortgage. I wouldn't even have a mortgage. Money would fall off of trees and land in my wallet, defying all the rules of everything. If I were really blessed by God, oh, I would never feel troubled about anything and I sure wouldn't feel sad about losing things or about not measuring up. And Jesus says, who told you that? Blessed are you when you're in a state of deprivation and you realize you got nothing before God but God. Blessed are you when you're you're aching to be better and for things to be set right and they're not. You're underneath God's smile. Blessed are you. You ever tried to make peace? I never felt more tension than the other day when the umpires didn't show up at a Macaulay-Baylor baseball game and they asked me if I would be the umpire. In every situation, I would do that, except that one. Someone is going to shoot me. These are gun-toting people. I never felt more pressure. When you're trying to make peace, everybody hates you. Jesus says you're a son of God. You know that story Jesus said, two men that went up to the temple, the one, the one who seemed blessed. He opened up his notebook, opened up his daily diary, and he began to read to God a soliloquy that he had composed for himself about himself. Oh God, I thank you. I thank you for the masterpiece of magnificence that you have crafted in this locale. I thank you that I am dripping 
with character and integrity and wonderment. And there was an ambulance chasing lawyer down the way who couldn't even get near the temple, the place where God was, and he couldn't even look God in the eye. Now, when you feel deeply ashamed, so ashamed that you could die, you can't meet eyes with somebody sometimes. And he couldn't meet eyes with God, and he fell to his knees and he beat his chest and he said, Oh, God, what could be done with me? Have mercy. That's the only thing I could come and ask. I can't say thanks for making me like this. I can say don't kill me. I can say please do something with me. Please don't discard me. And I've thought before, I wonder if you have, how did that dude feel when he walked home that day? Well, we don't know. But can't you guess? He felt like a louse. He felt like, I hope nobody will see me. I don't want to be around anyone. Who would want to be around somebody as disgusting as me? And you know what Jesus said about the matter? I tell you the truth. Here he goes again. His authoritative evaluations. I tell you the truth. That man, rather than the apparently blessed man, went home justified by God. Blessed by God. For whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And so the trick for that man is to get his evaluation of himself on track with Jesus' evaluation of him. Jesus said he went home in good spot with God. He probably felt like he was in a lousy spot. And don't you understand why it's nice to listen to Jesus then? Because if you're constantly thinking you've got condemnation and nothing but it, you're constantly thinking of how you failed and how you're not measuring up, and you can hear him say who's really blessed, well, that's an evaluation worth listening to. It's something worth embracing. You can embrace Jesus as your teacher, and you can embrace his evaluation. And I'll close with this. Last week, when I was stuck on the couch, missing celebration of Resurrection Sunday, disappointed, but just feeling horrible. I caught Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And there is this scene at the end where Jesus has been linked up to his cross and he is carrying it. And he's been filleted. His face has become disfigured. And he's on the ground trying to carry this cross that he cannot carry, but he has his arms embracing it. Like he's hugging this cross And Gibson has one of the thieves who's being rightly crucified next to him scream at Jesus. What is wrong with you, you fool? Why do you embrace your cross? Why do you embrace your cross? Jesus, he has him as he's walking along, almost hugging this torture instrument. He can't even stand. And at one point he falls. 
And his mother catches sight of him. And she sees nothing but her five-year-old boy who's scraped his knee and she's remembering running over and saying, I'm here. I'm here. And as she comes to bring him consolation with his arms wrapped around this shame, he says, Behold, mother, I make all things new. Behold, mother, I make all things new. He was the only person on the premises that day, the only person in the city of Jerusalem that day who could have said anything like that. Everybody else knew he was meeting his end, his interpretations of himself and of his life in the waste bin of history until he got up. Until he got up and he said, peace be with you. Until he got up and he said, follow me. Until he got up and he says, I'll be with you till the end of the age. Until he got up and said, embrace me and you'll be forgiven. Embrace me and you'll be remade. Embrace me and the life of heaven will come into you and you will be my representatives on the earth. That's something you can throw your arms around the way he threw his arms around that cross. Embrace his teaching. Embrace his evaluations of things. You'll be remade.